might as a child learn that uh, we're unworthy or that the world is a very scary place, right? And so these like little understandings of the world get birthed into schema modes. But once you understand what your brain is doing, you can actually stop and speak to that piece of yourself, like speak to the angry child or speak to the detached protector and tell them to kind of step down. Jennifer is a force to be reckoned with. In just two years as a content creator, she has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers collectively on Instagram and TikTok as Thickabod Crane BPD, posting authentic and raw content about things like her struggles with BPD, parenting, and grief. She is unapologetically herself. And this is why I was so delighted to be able to speak with her about her recovery journey. And just a heads up, this was the first interview I recorded, so the sound quality is a little bit off because I used a different recording app that wasn't as good as the one I use now. This interview was super fun and chill, and I loved it. And if you find you do better having a transcript, I do have transcripts of episodes up on my blog, including this one, which I will link in the show notes. Okay, let's go talk to Jen. Quiet, not silent. So who is Jennifer? What what are you all about? My jam is just, I guess, trying to figure out how to lead the most comfortable life with very uncomfortable disorders. You know what I mean? Love that. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> no, I know that you don't relate to quiet BPD. Your, mm-hmm. your presentation of BPD is uh, a little bit different than mine. Yes. And I think that's important to talk about because the fact is that people with BPD are not a monolith. We're not the same and our disorder doesn't manifest and present itself the same way. And so that's why I wanted to bring you on is because I want to know what aspects of BPD do you find are the hardest for you to live with? Oh, yeah. See, right away, I'm like rage, like immediately rage (laughs) for me, you know, Mm -hmm. because like you said, everyone is so different. So everyone's going to find a different characteristic to be like the most bothersome in their lives. Um, But Mm -hmm. I would say rage, you know, kind of fuels every negative emotion in my life. It certainly fuels like the anxiety, you know, which is ever present. And it's just like, it just almost becomes... It fucks with your identity, you know, which is already being fucked with. So it's just, you wonder who you are because you can't control these outbursts of rage, which are really outbursts of sadness, but they just come out completely differently. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is that your anger tends to be like secondary emotion to Mm -hmm. other things like sadness. Yeah, it's like, it's like my translator. So it's just, it's, I feel like anger sits right at my mouth, you know, like I have all these emotions in my, in my brain and like in my chest, you know, but anger sits right at my mouth. So no matter what I'm like thinking or no matter what I'm feeling, the only thing that's going to come out is anger. It just speaks for me. 
Mm-hmm. It's like being yeah. in fight mode. Like, you know, there's those four yes. F types. There's fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Yes, but the most ironic thing is that I really, like a coin, I flip back and forth between fight and fawn, which are, I think are the two most opposite, like, uh, ones mm-hmm. you could possibly, you know, imagine. But they're both, you know, survival techniques, and it's almost like I kind of have to read the situation. And, you know, there is this sort of, like, ultra, like, next-level identity, you know, higher self, if you want to say, in me, that reads the situation and wonders, like, what's going to get me what I want here, you know? And what I want is driven by this sort of, like, BPD, you know, almost selfishness, you know, to protect myself, to preserve myself, to save myself. But, you know, it just all gets kind of twisted. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed you said the word selfish, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's selfish. I think that is a little bit of a self-judgment there, because like you yeah. said, it is more self-preservation. It's survival. Yeah. That's the tool that you grew up like, having to resort to using, because it was the only one that you knew. No, you're absolutely right. It's almost like that... Um you know, it's, it's that sense of like, as a child, you know, they're not paying attention. Like, let me get louder. Let me get louder. Let me get louder. You know? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I'm glad you said that because that is a a point that comes up quite a bit when I'm hearing like, where does BPD come from or how does it develop? It's kind of two sides of the same coin where if you're growing up in an invalidated environment, there's one of two things that can happen either the child learns that they get what they want by acting out and have those outbursts because if they don't they're not going to be taken seriously so they have to resort to extreme behavior or there's people like myself where Mm -hmm. we minimize our need and we have learned to okay you know what i'm gonna have to just figure this out on my own because no one will help me So I'm just going to be quiet, sit there, and pretend like I don't have any problems at all. We're just completely internalizing it, like stuffing it down. It's weird because almost part of me, I wish I could do that. I'm like, oh, I'm like, what's that like? But I know it's like got to be agony on that side too, you know? Yeah, like I said, it's like two sides of the same coin. They're both shitty, you know, they're just shitty in different ways. They just look different, but they're both suffering yeah they're both absolute like agony yeah because I'm imagining a child who's like never even able to say that they're sad you know versus a child that's screaming I'm sad it's like they're both they both fucking break my heart yeah one is just I need you to hear me and I'm desperate and the other one is well what's the point because time and time again no one has heard me yeah oh god it's like defeated yeah I do notice that rage, you said that rage is something that you really struggle with. Even though I do act, do the acting in and the internalizing, I find that I also live, not so much anymore, but for pretty much my whole life, I've lived with this like baseline anger. That, like I'm very quick to being angry. My fuse is very short. Yes. Yeah. Like just constantly irritable. Like I would say like people would just describe me that way. They'd be like, oh yeah, she's cool. She's a little irritable. You know, like (laughs) just be like one of the things people would even say about me. Yeah. For me, I find that it's the worst when I've been in service jobs. Like I'm always anticipating that a customer is going to treat me like crap. 
And then, so I'm like making myself angry over things that haven't even happened yet. <laughs> yes. And then waiting for them to happen and preparing myself. And so I'm like constantly angry. Yeah, the the creation of scenarios in your head is such a big thing. Is like is like, oh, I know, I know what they're gonna do next. Like, I know it. <laughs> yeah, you're like coping ahead for just like the worst case scenario, like just to get treated like absolute dog shit. Yeah, yeah. and then they like don't treat you like dog shit. And you're like, oh, oh, wait, okay, I don't know how to deal with this right now. Yeah, you're like, oh, am I an asshole? Like, you're like shit. Like now I feel bad. Like, damn, yeah. Oh no, you're treating me like a person. What do I do? yes yes oh my god service jobs dude and if you think about it it's like every job is like what job is not customer service which is like abysmal okay, you know Honestly, it's like the worst like we're always yeah. serving someone it's the it's that customer service mask and like the voice the customer service the voice. voice oh my god there are a lot of similarities in how we experience vpd but there there seem to also be a lot of differences and i think that that's really really interesting absolutely you know it's funny though because i do i fawn sometimes you know it really it really depends and i never know what is going to happen but i've always figured out like if i do fawn for any extended period of time like if i feel the need to sort of like save myself in that way by just be like rolling over like a dog anytime that happens there is a massive rage outburst later it just might not be around that person you know it's like i save it i save it i squirrel it away you know do you ever yeah. do that? Do you ever like squirrel oh, yeah. away a rage outburst? Yeah. So save it for later. A lot of people find like a lot of people that relate to quiet BPD, for example, or just like the font response. It's like a kind of a people pleasing thing where you stuff it down, and then later you develop this resentment either yeah. for the thing that you're fawning for, or you're like projecting the resentment for that thing on someone right so that's where the the rage comes in like you're mad and you're having an outburst and then you realize like oh fuck I wasn't even mad about whatever I just had an outburst about I'm actually mad because I have this resentment for this other thing and I'm irritable and yeah it's finally bubbled up yeah out of my control wow and and that's definitely like is that like a quiet BPD thing I'm like ooh, that's a characteristic I definitely feel I have sometimes it's a very it's a very common quiet BPD experience because it comes with fawning, it comes with problematic people pleasing. Yeah. You know, they're just coping habits that come with the disorder and with trauma, right? Yeah. Like um they're they're all just super frustrating and they're all really, really hard to work through. It's it's been a long journey of like addressing people pleasing and I still kinda do it sometimes, unfortunately. I wanted to talk to you about parenting. I I don't have children, but we're pretty much the same age. Like, you're a 90s kid. That's right. Repping at 92. Okay, so I'm a 94, so we're pretty much the same age. Love that. <laughs> yeah. What is it like being a parent with BPD? Like, Oh, girl, it's fucking wild. I, I'm kidding. Honestly, it's, for me personally, I mean, everyone obviously is going to react differently. Like, I know, I know there's going to be people, you know, who had BPD parents who were very rough on them or mm-hmm. maybe we're like emotionally shut down or you know we're really like authoritarian but for me you know personally the BPD the effect that that has on my parenting um is quite the opposite and I actually have to like do a lot of research and like learning on how to discipline because I won't do it you know like 
when my child was born, I said to myself, like, this is my spiritual equal, you know, like, I get that he's a child, he's not equal to him, he can't drive a car, like, you know, but spiritually, we're equal, you know. And that was something that I don't think any BPD kid ever got from their parents. Like no one ever felt like a spiritual equal to their parents here, like nobody, you know? So that was the most important thing to me was to sort of lead with the fact, like, for example, I hear people talk to their kids and even I work in in a school, you know? So I'll hear, you know, teacher assistants, whatever, talk to the kids, talk to students the way that you wouldn't even talk to like someone you didn't like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, like the rude tone, the talking down, the belittling, like that type of thing. Like, Ugh. you know, I hate it. Yeah. I'm like very dehumanizing. Exactly. I'm like, if you wouldn't treat your friend this way, then don't treat a child this way, you know? So if you're not going to treat your friend this way, you're not going to speak to your friend this way. You're not going to speak to a child this way, period. So my biggest thing was you know, my child's a spiritual equal and that is great. And it's lovely and it's beautiful. But from that births, you know, not disciplining your child, not having boundaries with your child, not, you know, and then, you know, there's always that fear of, you know, will I become too close with my son? Like that's traumatizing too. You know, when the child doesn't feel that they can, you know, be safe without their parent in the world, that type of thing. So for me, you know, having BPD and parenting has been learning how to almost be like tougher than I am because I'm just so fucking sensitive and I project that sensitivity onto my son you know that must be really hard it's so rough like it's to the point like <laughs> he's in second grade now I don't even like it when he gets disciplined at school like and he goes to the school that I work in and like I don't like when he gets disciplined <laughs> because I feel that like if I'm not even gonna discipline my kid like that like who are you and I'm like okay well are they talking nicely to him when they discipline him like are they telling him that he's still a really good kid when they're disciplining him like how are they doing this do they give him a side eye like you know what I mean do they cold shoulder him like I just it's so hard it's so hard dude that would be really hard to not be able to have any control over the way that being disciplined at school yeah Um, Yeah. like you have control over how you discipline your child Mm -hmm. but there is kind of a level of acceptance there that that you can't control the way they're treating him at school do you find that you have to reinforce things at at home when he comes home and, and you have to kind of do that reassurance always and it's such a fine line to walk because you know, you obviously want to keep the appearance that you're on the same page as your kid's teacher. So you have to kind of toe that bottom line. But at the same time, if I think something's ridiculous, you know, or that my kid is just being a kid, you know, it's hard because I I still can't show him that, you know, I still have to show him that like, you know, me and your teacher were on the same page. But every day, you know, I'm sneaking in things like, you know, you know, you know, I'm on your team, right? I always got your back, you know, there's nothing you can do. And that's something I say to him, he knows the other end of it is like, you know, that could make me not love you. But I always tell him there's nothing you could do. And he goes, I know, I know. So yeah, there's a lot of reinforcing at home. Like, I know I don't have a, a kid, but I, I can imagine I would have a hard time, like, being my child's friend and also their parent at the same time. Like, I would have a really hard time balancing that. Exactly. It's exactly that. And that's like what I'm like learning right now. And what I'm trying to focus on is like, it's exactly that because he thinks that I'm his best friend, which is amazing, you know, 
but he does also have to respect, you know, when I say like, no, it's bedtime now. And he wants to sit there and talk with me about it. It's like, no, it's bedtime. Like, so yeah, it's such, it's such a line to toe. And I constantly have to learn how to discipline in ways that are like positive, you know, positive reinforcement and that kind of stuff. So disciplining in ways that aren't triggering to me, but also parenting him in a way that's not leading from a place of trauma, you know? Right. Right. It's difficult. I definitely believe that. And as someone who had a really traumatic school environment growing up, I would also have a hard time with the not being able to know or, or have control over the way that my child is disciplined at school. Like, yeah. this, like especially that, um, yes. that would be really, really hard for me. And so it must be hard talking about that maybe with other parents. They might not understand. Oh my God, never. And I'll tell you what, the only other parent I've ever spoken to who actually like got it was another BPD parent. Okay. Like, no. (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, I know. Like, we're both literally talking about homeschooling our kids, like for that reason, you know, and like, you know, really thinking it over. But yeah, every other parent I talked to, I mean, I work in a school, so I hear these parents come in and, you know, they'll yell at their kid right there in the lobby in front of everyone. And like, you know, demand, yeah, demand more detentions. And I'm just like, oh, my Atlanta, Georgia, like, I just can't, you know, like, it's so triggering to work in a school as a person with BBD. That's a whole side thing. But I would straight up go into fight mode. Oh, my God. It's constant fight mode, dude. Like having that like, yes, it's so bad, especially as a school nurse. It's, it's rough. The fact that you that you kind of see that and you have empathy for children. You you see them as human beings. You don't dehumanize them. You don't objectify them. You see them as full people just because they're children and they don't have the responsibility. Yeah. Full worthy beings. Yes. Yeah. Just because they're children, they don't have the full responsibility or, or, or skills as adults. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're like half people. It doesn't mean exactly. that they're less worthy of and so you know you can be a really good advocate for your child well thank you so much so have you faced stigma as a parent with bpd like has have people kind of discovered that you have bpd and they've said shitty things yeah yeah i mean to be honest i truthfully don't talk about having bpd like in real life to anybody you know for the fact that i'm terrified that someone's gonna like you know think something shitty about me but obviously you know I'm open about it online and it's nothing but shit like I just receive constant hate um you know mostly from it's all from people who had a parent quote-unquote with BPD whether their parent was actually diagnosed with BPD or not remains to be seen yeah it's usually the armchair diagnosing yes we have a lot of armchair diagnosers um yes for sure who love to slap a BPD label on their parents simply because their parent was abusive. Um, And those things have obviously nothing to do with each other. Um, Yeah. So it's always those people who are like, you know, don't you know what you're doing to your child? And then the worst that I've found recently, because recently, you know, started posting more on Instagram about being a parent. Didn't want to do it for a long time because of the hate, but you know, decided there's enough of us out here, you know? So posted to Instagram about being a parent and unfortunately received some of the 
just most unsettling comments. They weren't hate comments. They weren't attacking me. It was just someone reflecting on themselves, their life, their own experience. And then, you know, other people commenting, you know, their thoughts, but it was so unsettling and it was so disturbing to me because it was people who have BPD themselves diagnosed with BPD who have decided to never have children, which mind you, if that is your choice, cause you don't want kids, that's absolutely fine. And I support it. But these were people who decided not to have children specifically for the simple fact that they have BPD because they thought merely because they have BPD and having a child that that child will end up neurodivergent. Like that is such a crime. First of all, you know, the rates are high, you know, to have children with neuro that are neurodivergent from a BPD parent, but treating it as if that was a crime against nature to know that you have BPD and to willingly have offspring, you know, treating it like a crime against nature. And that was so upsetting to me. So upsetting to see people like me feel that way. That's so sad. Yeah. It really like, I was crying for a little bit. Like it honestly broke my heart. For someone to have such internalized shame about their disorder and, and fear about it, that they didn't want to, deny themselves something like an experience in life that they really really want that is so sad that is that makes me feel so that would make yeah. me cry too if I got all these messages on my post about being a parent mm -hmm. and then I just thought like <clears throat> you know obviously I didn't want to delete their comments because they weren't being hateful they were talking about their experience but I kept thinking about you know other people who might be thinking about having kids and be on the fence about it, reading that and being like, oh shit, like maybe I shouldn't, like maybe it's bad if I want kids. Like, what would you, did you say anything back to them? Like, what would you want to say to them? I truthfully said nothing, but you know, I thought about it for a long time, how to kind of address it. And I didn't want to invalidate them, but at the same time, I wanted them to know that they were kind of invalidating other people, you know? And I think just the biggest thing I wanted to tell them was it's not a crime against nature to have a child that's neurodivergent, you know, and that there are plenty of BPD parents who are not abusing their children in any way and who still end up with neurodivergent kids and that's okay because there are neurodivergent kids everywhere, you know, and it's not, it's certainly not a bad thing to be one. We were one, you know, so it's not bad. And who better, you know, to sort of address and teach and raise a neurodivergent child than someone who's like neurodivergent themselves you know like who better is going to understand the emotional dysregulation you know the worst thing to me is when when a neurodivergent kid is like gifted to neurotypical parents who are like why won't this kid calm down like why can't this kid just stop you know that's that's the true crime against humanity you know did you have these fears when when you were having your your son Oh, Lord, no, because guess what? BPD to me didn't exist when I, when I was having my son. My son had already come out of my whole body and he was, I believe he was like 18 months old. He might have been almost two years old when I, when I got diagnosed and I had no idea what it was. So I found out later on and it was kind of like, you know, I did the thing that everyone does. I Googled BPD. And it oh, was no. like this, yeah, it was the scariest moment of my fucking life. Oh, I sat no. there, yeah, thinking like, oh shit, my kid's fucking doomed. Like, no. I'm doomed, my marriage is doomed. I was doomed, you know, I was married at that time and it was doomed, but that's <laughs> regardless. But yeah, I just was sitting there like feeling like my life was crumbling around me because someone, you know, 
told me a secret that I never knew about myself. It was insane. Wow. Yeah. I can just imagine the overwhelm that you must have. Literally. Like, (laughs) yes. And I remember like how I got that diagnosis too. Like I was in therapy for like over a year and, you know, I was getting like quote unquote discharged from therapy to go to like another higher level therapist who was bullshit. But when I was being discharged, you know, she said the word comorbidity. And I was like, what does that mean? And she's like, oh, it means that you have, you know, you have two coexisting disorders. And I said, well, what are those? Like, well, can you tell me? Like, you, you want to tell me what those are? And she said bipolar and borderline. And I shot my pants. I couldn't believe, you know. But what's funny is like in EM, my whole, like, literally up until two months ago, um, was convinced, you know, not bipolar, just BPD, just BPD. It wasn't until I started EMDR, started digging more and sort of like, which I don't know, it kind of geared up everything in my brain. Um, I was talking to my EMDR therapist a lot and I was telling him like, you know, it just sucks. I feel like, I feel like every week I get so burnt out. I can't take a shower. I can't leave my bed. And then, you know, it's like the very next week, it's like I can't sleep and I wake up at 2 a.m. before my alarm goes off. So I'm struggling with that a little bit because to me, the label of bipolar means that you have to take medication for life. And I'm just not ready to address that, you know? So, but that's that's well, a story for another day. <laughs> you know what? That's okay. If you're not ready and you know you're yeah. not ready. Yeah. It's just something you can just accept. Like, eventually you might be ready and... There's no yeah. rules on your recovery journey. There's no time limit or whatever. It's yeah. when you're ready, you're ready. And no one else can decide that. Yeah. I'm like, we're just going to put that over in the corner and we're just going to, I'm like, we'll just address that little box later. <laughs> yeah. That's what I tell myself, you know. Some some boxes can can wait a little bit. So you mentioned uh, EMDR. Have you tried other modalities or just EMDR? EMDR I'm obsessed with currently because it's like saving my life. But I also am really in love with schema therapy, which is something I sort of do more with myself on the side. But the two of them together is like, I feel like it's unlocking my ring. How, how is, we'll start with that. Like, how has that benefited you? Because uh, that, if I recall correctly, is for treating trauma and PTSD, stuff like yes. that. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's been huge. So I kind of walked into EMDR therapy being like, you know, I don't even know my trauma. Like I'm like, you know, some bad shit happened, nothing crazy. You know, I told him like, I didn't get locked in anybody's trunk. Like, you know, it's fine. And he kind of explained to me, he's like, you don't have to, you know, come in here with a laundry list of things we need to work on. He's like, that's fine. But he referenced something called trauma networks. And he said, everyone has trauma networks. And apparently, they're all stored in our right brain. So Hmm. these trauma networks, like you'll maybe have a childhood trauma network, maybe you have a trauma network that's attached to your father, maybe you have a trauma network attached to, you know, a job or attached to a place or an ex boyfriend, um, or a moment in time, you know, when you went to college, that sort of thing. So you have all these trauma networks and his goal is to first to identify them, right? Figure out where these spots are. And then one by one, he'll hit each trauma network. Now within each trauma network, you have all these memories, these traumatic memories. He doesn't have to, or they don't have to individually address every single one because they're all connected by associations 
So by addressing one or two, it actually associates with the other memories and it processes them in one fell swoop. It's freaking magic. <laughs> wow. I did not know that. Yes. So it's all contained in your right brain. So when you do EMDR, you move your eyes back and forth um, and you have, you know, uh, binaural beats kind of going back and forth, buzzers in your hand going back and okay, forth. Okay. Love that. Yes. Right. So good for you. So good for your brain. Yeah. I have them going like in the background with my music and uh, yeah. Wow. Game changer. So, so good. Yeah. It really just activates both sides of your brain because it kind of forces, it really forces your consciousness to jump almost from one side to the other. And then moving your eyes back and forth has almost that hypnotic effect of like REM cycle sleep. So it kind of puts you in this headspace where everything is safe, you know, and kind of like you just don't feel stressed out by what you're talking about. And when both sides are activated and you recall that trauma network or a piece of that trauma network, when both sides are activated, you're actually able to process that memory and pull it out of the right brain, activate it or process it by both activated, you know, hemispheres. And it just gets tucked away as a normal memory and becomes just a sad story, as my therapist would say. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It made me think of like inside out, you know, when they like, oh my God, the yes. memory little yes. memory balls. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yes. Sadness mm-hmm. is just touching it. Like, it's okay. It's okay to be sad. Here you go. First of all, that movie it made me cry. So EMDR, that was a really helpful explanation. I have, I did not know those things about EMDR. I'm not, so. Isn't that crazy? You should do it. Because honestly, I mean, it's so helpful. We processed the the memory of finding out that my brother had died. And that was something that, you know, I don't even talk about with anyone. And now it's just a sad story. And that's like a miracle, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that, that moment just must've been horrific for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was awful. Just yeah. Life-changing. Yeah. I was like 17 years old. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I would say it was one of those moments in life, um, you know, where people describe in movies the moment that uh, changes the entire trajectory of your life, the moment that changes your whole life. Yeah. You know, I, I just can't imagine because uh, I'm really close with my brother and yeah. I feel like that moment for me also, that would, um, I would never be the same. Oh yeah. And that's the wind out of your, out of your spirit, dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. We were really, we were really close, but my son is so much like him and looks so much like him and is just like, my little like ADHD, like, you know, my little kiddo. And he's so much like his uncle. It's funny. Love. Oh my yeah. God. That's amazing. <laughs> you did mention schema therapy. Yes. Um, schema. My uh, the other love of my life. Yes. Oh my God. So let's talk about schema therapy because there are just so many modalities out there that, that work for people. Um, so mm-hmm. What can you tell me about schema therapy? I've never done that. It's so cool. So for me, I'm sure there's ways like that a therapist can lead you through schema therapy and they do it more like transference based. So they would, you know, if you did schema therapy with a therapist, they would likely have you, you know, do something. They'd be like, um, you know, talk to me like I'm your inner child or talk to me like I'm so-and-so, you know, I am not super comfortable with transference based therapy. It's like always been a little like a skosh awkward for me. Um, so, so I, I like to do schema therapy more almost like a research-based, um, like journal prompting sort of self-led therapy. So, I mean, there's a lot of research 
that can be done into schema, you know, as far as really analyzing all the different things. But I think where EMDR sort of unlocks your trauma and helps you process it, schema therapy more like unlocks your self-awareness and helps you just become viscerally aware of how your thought process works so that you can actually jump in there and stop it and be like, okay, I know where this is going. You know, the idea of schema therapy is essentially that we as children develop these like maladaptive coping strategies. Um, We develop these like sort of like early childhood schemas, these um, roles that we play, these ways that we interact with the world, right? So we might as a child learn that uh, we're unworthy or that the world is a very scary place, right? And so these like little understandings of the world get birthed into schema modes. And schema modes are really just like our survival modes. Like these are like our tactics, like how we go about getting what we need. But our schema modes are divided into like child modes, parent modes, and then maladaptive coping strategies. So someone with BPD, and like you said, you know, there's a million different ways to sort of exhibit BPD, to have BPD, to show it. Um, we're all going to have different schema modes. But for me, for example, to let you know what it is, I always jump immediately to vulnerable child mode, which is like a stigmatized wording there a little bit. But um, it's sort of the role of a child that is completely helpless, um, cannot meet any of their own needs whatsoever. So picture like a child in a high chair who can't even unbuckle himself out of the high chair, needs someone to bring them food, completely helpless, right? So that is sort of emotionally the role that I step into when I'm very, very upset. I cannot immediately, it just cannot, it's an immediate no, I can't meet my own needs. Um, When someone doesn't immediately step in, you know, in a way that is like, okay, I see that you need this, here it is. When someone's not able to provide that to me immediately, I become angry child. An angry child is the same amount of helpless, but is very upset about it and demands louder and louder, like we were talking about with the rage outbursts, demands louder and louder to be heard like, hey, get me out of this high chair. Hey, I need food, that sort of thing, right? Now, let's say, you know, let's say angry child mode's ineffective. Let's say nobody gets me out of the high chair, emotionally speaking, right? I might switch to a parent mode, um, or even a maladaptive coping strategy where I might become a detached protector. So I might say to myself, you know, subconsciously, okay, this isn't working. No one's coming. No one's going to help you. You're fucked. You're not getting out of here. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to sit there and emotionally suffer. I'm going to detach myself emotionally. So I'll sit there, I'll dissociate, and I'll completely detach myself from the pain of being stuck wherever I am, right? Mm. Fascinating. So you're not accepting the pain. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there's a million different roles you can really step into at different parent modes where you can sit there and be punitive towards yourself and sort of, you know, be really angry towards yourself, retaliate against yourself for even being in the situation that you're in, you know, all kinds of, um, all kinds of ways. But once you understand what your brain is doing, you can actually stop and speak to that piece of yourself, like speak to the angry child or speak to the, t- the detached protector and tell them to kind of step down. Now, when you're speaking to them, like, what does that conversation with yourself look like? Is it filled with self-compassion? Is it firm? Always compassionate. So whenever I speak to myself, you know, it always has to be compassionate because I think that's what was really lacking for me personally in childhood. 
So I validate myself with compassion. So I'll, I'll kind of ask myself, and this is like a visualization exercise that I'll do. So I'll sit in a very dark room. My favorite room is my toilet room in my master bath. It's so tiny. Sorry, your There's toilet just, room? My toilet room, yes. Like, literally, do, you, oh, do you guys have I that have in that Canada? Correct, your toilet room. Yes. Do you guys have toilet rooms in Canada? What? Okay, we're going to interrupt. What is a toilet room? Sorry? What? Like, isn't that just a bathroom? <laughs> no, so within a bathroom. You ever been in one of those bathrooms where you're like, okay, I'm in a bathroom. Here's my sink. But where's the toilet? But there's you're like, where is it? There's a door, right? So you open the door. Oh, it's in a room within the bathroom. Yes. Yes. The toilet room in the bathroom. Okay, no, no, no. I've been in the toilet room. Okay, no, I've been in the toilet room. That's so funny. I just I was like, what yes. are you talking about right now? You're like, what the f <laughs> just a hole with a toilet. <laughs> so I sit there. I sit there. So, wait, with the so you're in your car right now, but you're not in your toilet room? Correct, correct. If I was in my toilet room, there would be such an echo. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> See, my toilet room is where I do my visualization, Avery. Duh. <laughs> okay, right. There's yes, there's a time and place for everything. There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so your toilet room, you talk to your child. <laughs> now it sounds so bad. <laughs> sounds terrible now. It's the only time I can talk to is when I'm shitting. Okay. Well, no, I promise. I turn the lights off, and because it's so dark in there, no light can get in this toilet room. And I sit crisscross applesauce on the floor, and I turn the fan on because it's really, really loud, and it like blocks out all noise. And I just sit there and I talk to like angry child, and I'm like, okay, girl, like wow, like we're we're upset. I see that. I get that. I hear that. What are we upset about? You know what I mean? And I really just kind of sit there and chat with her. I almost come at her, it sounds so silly, not maternally, but as like a teenage older sister, you know, like someone that my angry child would want to impress. You know what I mean? Like someone who my angry child maybe wants to show like, look, I can do my best where she might not respond to a maternal figure, you know? I really feel that. I feel like I kind of do that. Yes. It's all about like teen girl, like almost like teen child speaking to young child. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I think right now, and I don't know about you, but emotionally, I feel stunted as a person with BPD. And I think right now, okay. I'm in my teen girl era. Like, I'm living it. She's healing. We're healing teen girl. We're loving it. And that's where I am emotionally. I'm like 17. <laughs> I don't know. Like, 90s kids with BPD, I feel like. <laughs> yes. And, of course, probably not all of us can relate. But I feel like at this point, we're kind of like riding this weird place where we're both reaching 30 flirty and thriving and then we're also like mentally like i want to kind of be 15 forever yes exactly like i'm like so tired and over life but at the same time i'm like 17 like how did that yeah happen? yeah yeah i'm like a grandma teenager yeah 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 you bad you bad really feel that so you basically in your in your your happy place you're re not necessarily reparenting yourself, but kind of. Yeah, like absolutely. This is how you're practicing self compassion with your 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 schema modes. Yeah, absolutely. That is super cool. Um, do you Thanks, know bro. like what other kind of schema modes? Like you mentioned yours. Are there mm -hmm. different ones? Oh my god, there's so many. I I think there's 18 right now. I, yeah, at the time I did a blog on schema modes like a while back. And at that time, I think there was 12. 
there's something like 18 schema modes right now. I'm not even wow. familiar with all of them, but um, mostly I think there's like, yeah, there's like three child modes, four parent modes. I really stay up in the child modes, if I'm going to be honest. Um, although I love to go to like detached protector mode. There are some um, maladaptive coping strategies, which are, those are also considered schema modes. They're just not like, it's not a parent mode, it's not a child mode. It's a, it's a strategy mode, right? So there's a, there are some there that I really just don't identify with at all. And that's, that's fine. Cause some of them are like bully, you know, one of them is a bully mode. Um, there's like, yeah, like a bully attack mode, um, that sort of thing, which I really just don't identify with. Um, Cause even though I, have rage outbursts is always predicated upon a sense of injustice and never, you know, attacking innocent people, you know. So, but, you know, some people do, that's how they, you know, we all know someone like that, sort of a bully. And that is their, that is their coping strategy, unfortunately. And and that goes to show you everybody has schema modes. Like it is not just a BPD thing. Um, Schema mode therapy is for absolutely everybody. I'm hearing how it's helped you. Do you have any criticisms of it? Like, is there anything you don't, you don't have to have it, yeah. but is there kind of something that you wish was different about it or? Yeah. I mean, I would say I don't love the wording of some of it. You know what I mean? The wording that I think can turn a lot of people off. Um, certainly when I you know, would make videos about schema mode therapy, um, there were, you know, people being like, oh, does it have to be called that? And I'm like, girlfriend, I don't make it up. Like, it's not my theory. Um, but yeah, I don't love the wording of, of some of it. You know, I think it would be hard for people like, for example, for someone whose um, strategy is to, you know, lash out, they might not identify or respond to being called a bully, you know, <laughs> like, oh, that's your bully mode. They'd be like, what? Like, you know, so I think maybe connotation um, could be more important in um, actually applying the therapy. But other than that, I love my schema therapy. I think it's right up there with DBT as far as like really teaching yourself how to communicate better with yourself. That's awesome. Have you done DBT as well or no? Yes, I love DBT. I'm always, I would say always doing DBT in a sense. Um, I have like my little tactical backpack that I bring with me. Always have my workbook in there. Um, I'm really always reviewing DBT. It's not something, I mean, you tell me, it's not really something you can ever quit. Am I right? Like, I mean, there's times in your life where you'll maybe really be all up in your worksheets. Like you're, you're hitting it hard. And then other times where you just, for a month, you just kind of reflect on some skills here and there and you use them here and there, but it's not something that ever goes away. Yeah. You just kind of internalize those tools and get better at using them. I will say I haven't internalized it yet. That's where I am, you know, like I can't wait till, till it's, it's more second nature, you know? Yeah. And you'll get there. Like just practice. I don't know if you do this or not, but practice your skills on things that aren't, that aren't a crisis. Jennifer, you're honestly sound like you're schema queen. (laughs) Schema queen. You mentioned like kind of how schema differs a little bit from DBT. What, what does DBT have that schema doesn't and maybe vice versa? Like what are maybe some things right off the top of your head? Well, I would say DBT has the skills, whereas schema just has the awareness. You know what I mean? Schema is like the the knowledge with no real, you're like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, you're like, I, now I know, but what do I do? You know? And then DBT is like, here's what you do, you know? So you kind of need both together, you know, like a handshake. 
So what I'm hearing is like these three, we've talked about three different modalities now. Yes. And mm-hmm. each of them seriously have a specific goal. Yes, exactly. Wow, you're like a modality like queen. <laughs> Honestly, the way that I think about it is like, is like I'm like, you got to hit it from all sides. You know what I'm saying? Because I have so many symptoms, right? Like these criteria, they're symptoms in our life. And I'm personally hate medication personally for myself so I'm like I'm like let's hit it from all sides with everything else we can you know I'm like let's throw the whole kitchen sink at it there is seriously not a single thing that is a catch-all for everything like you know something is not one thing is not going to work for every single person and one person some particular solution isn't going to solve every single thing not going to address all of their goals or all of their issues that they're having. Right. And so it's really good to try out different things depending on what your current recovery goals are. Right. So I I think that's really cool that you've tried out a bunch of stuff. And also the fact that you, I think it's okay that you're not really fond of medication. It's really not for everybody. Not everybody is, you know, you're not obligated to take it if, if it makes you uncomfortable, you know, and, and you have the power to make that decision for yourself. Thanks dude. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of talk about today? I mean, honestly, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. I kind of like am a fangirl for you a little bit. I will say. <laughs> Stop. Like, what you I, if, there's a, <laughs> if there's a positive way, if, if there's a positive word that means like intimidate, that's what you do to me. Like <laughs> you positively intimidate me. So I just want to say thank you. <laughs> positively intimidate. That's so <laughs> with all the loving connotations it's the same for me honestly i feel you um where can people find you because yeah you mentioned instagram and we actually talk like where can where can people find you and check out your stuff oh all about the instagram and the tiktoks yes so it's gonna be at thickabod crane bpd on on the social apps I'm going to try to get a YouTube up and going here soon. So, you know, stay posted. And so Thickabod Crane, how do you spell that? Oh, T-H-I-C-K, right? <laughs> like, is it right? Thick? A-B-O-D. Uh, Crane is C-R-A-N-E-B-P-D. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I'm here for it. I'm Thank here so for much. people just being unapologetic themselves online. <sighs> Love, Jen. Jen, if you're listening to this, Jen's content just reminds me I'm I'm gay as fuck. I would die for you. I would die for you. Um, okay, anyway, <laughs> in the next episode, we're going to chat with my friend Molly about their journey recovering from addiction while learning to manage their bipolar and borderline personality disorder. This was a really great interview that reminded me a lot how important it is to feel in order to heal and i'm really excited for you to listen to it so we'll see you next time quiet not silent we can create a perfect world in our heads